a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to get his pants on. Winston Churchill Warning, the following podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to the jury room, where we dissect some of the most heinous, most unthinkable, and most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth. From cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries, these stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. In today's episode of The Jury Room, a serial-killing couple responsible for a series of horrific schoolgirl killings and serial rapes that terrorized Ontario in the 1990s. This is Carla Homolka and Paul Bernardo or as they are more commonly known, the Barbie and Ken Killers. On Christmas Eve, 1990, the Homolka family was celebrating the holiday at their suburban home in St. Catharines, Ontario, Canada. 20-year-old Carla Homolka, along with her fiancé, 26-year-old Paul Bernardo, invited Carla's little sister Tammy to the basement after her parents fell asleep. They asked if she wanted to party with them. Tammy was 15, The blonde, bright-eyed girl was excited to be asked to hang out with her cool older sister and Paul, who she thought of as a brother. Carla handed Tammy a glass of hard eggnog. Unlike most holiday drinks, however, this eggnog was spiked with something a little stronger than rum. It was laced with crushed animal tranquilizer that Carla had stolen from her job at a veterinary clinic. Paul and Carla watched hungrily as the 15-year-old Tammy passed out from the drugs. Then, Carla grabbed a video camera, pressed record, and told her fiancé to do whatever he wished to her little sister. Young Tammy's virginity, she told him, was his Christmas present. The couple took turns raping the unconscious teenager while the other held the camera. Carla, to keep her sister from waking, pressed the cloth soaked in anesthesia over Tammy's mouth and nose. But Tammy soon began to vomit and choked to death in her comatose state. Tammy's horrifying death would mark the first murder for the sadistic Barbie and Ken killers. Notorious in Canada for the serial rapes, tortures, and murders, the couple performed on young girls together. Carla and Paul were a powerful, psychopathic, and deadly force. Both together and alone, the killer couple would be responsible for dozens of rapes and three murders before they were finally caught by police. In the meantime, they enjoyed a fairy tale wedding near Niagara Falls, honeymooned in Hawaii, and moved into a gorgeous starter home where they began their life together and end the lives of two others. What led to Carla and Paul's lethal instincts? Were they as dangerous apart as they were together? Two decades before Carla and Paul's fatal attraction began, Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka were growing up 40 minutes apart in Ontario, Canada. From the outside, little Paul Bernardo seemed like the perfect kid. According to Nick Prawn, author of Lethal Marriage, Paul was always happy, a young boy who smiled a lot, and he was so cute, with his dimpled good looks and sweet smile that many of the mothers just wanted to pinch him on the cheek whenever they saw him. He was the perfect child they all wanted, polite, well-mannered, doing well in school, so sweet, in his Boy Scout uniform. From a young age, Paul had the ability to charm anyone he spoke to. 
He knew how to transform his personality to fit the situation he was in and to get the people to like him. Further, he was an all-Canadian boy, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed boy scout that people were automatically drawn to. He was deemed trustworthy, friendly, even kind. In the privacy of his own home, however, life was bleaker for this darling boy. Paul was the youngest child of three. His father, Kenneth Bernardo, was abusive to Paul's mother, Marilyn. He beat her and called her a big fat cow, bitch, and other demeaning names. Kenneth would also regularly peep through the women's windows and watch them undress. Most atrociously, Ken molested Paul's sister and at least one other child. In 1975, when Paul was just nine years old, his father fondled a young girl in the neighborhood and was arrested on child molestation charges. While his father was physically and sexually abusive to the Bernardo children, Paul's mother was verbally abusive. She would engage in screaming matches with Paul when he was still a young boy. In an attempt to get some distance from her husband, Marilyn slept in the basement of the home, where she would lock herself away from her own children, leaving them upstairs to fend for themselves alongside their dangerous father. While Paul's charms shield the outside world from seeing into his broken home, there was more subtle cracks in his facade. As a Boy Scout, Paul was obsessed with setting fires. Still, unlike many future serial killers, he never went as far to cause any real destruction until he was a teenager. When Paul was 16, the life that Paul knew was turned upside down. During an explosive fight with his mother, Marilyn revealed that Kenneth was not actually Paul's father. Paul was the unwanted product of an extramarital affair. This disgusted Paul, who felt his entire existence had been a lie. Any shred of trust he had with his family was obliterated. Furious with his mother, he called her a slut and a whore, and their fights grew more vicious and intense. Marilyn retaliated by calling Paul a bastard, a painful reminder of his shameful conception and his burden to the family. Paul's hatred for his mother began to spread to a detest of all women. He had dark, sexual fantasies in which he was in total and complete control. One such fantasy was of a virgin farm where he would breed dozens of virgin girls and rape them over and over again. To Paul, taking a woman's virginity meant possessing total domination over her. It was a surefire way to feel all-powerful. It wasn't difficult for the attractive, charismatic teen to get attention from women. He landed his first girlfriend, Nadine, and right away tried to control her. Fed up and worry, Nadine broke things off with Paul, igniting a flame in the process. Furious, Paul burned everything Nadine had ever given. He watched the items turn to ash, and the sadistic monster awakened within him. Paul attended the University of Toronto at Scarborough. He got a job working for Amway, a multi-level marketing firm. Bernardo saw an opportunity to use the skills he had learned for his own sadistic benefit. He collected motivational get-rich-quick books and tapes, mastering how to make a perfect sale through manipulation, charm, and deceit. He didn't use his newfound knowledge to sell products, however. He used it to pick up on unsuspecting women. Paul began dating a series of women, all of whom he enjoyed publicly humiliating, another form of manipulation and control for Paul. He didn't wait long to become physically and verbally abusive to his dates, making crude phone calls to them, harassing them, embarrassing them, cheating on them, and raping them. He threatened to murder his girlfriends if any of them told of his abusive behavior during or after their relationship. In 1986, two of Paul's girlfriends filed for restraining orders against him, but it didn't stop Paul from escalating his behavior to new heinous degrees. 
By 1987, a darkness had fallen over Scarborough in the form of a single figure lurking in the shadows on the hunt. The whole suburban town was paranoid and afraid, shaken to its core. No one in the cookie-cutter community had ever faced anything like this before. For lying in wait in the darkness, driven by a thirst for violence and ready to attack at any moment, was the Scarborough Rapist. It would be six more years of torment, rape, and finally murder before the Scarborough Rapist would be identified as the dimple-cheeked, all-Canadian, charming Paul Bernardo. In the late hours of May 4, 1987, a 21-year-old woman exited the city bus and walked to her parents' home. She had no idea that someone was following her. The streets were empty. It seemed all of Scarborough was sleeping. When she reached her yard, she was suddenly attacked from behind and brutally raped. She was the first known victim of the Scarborough Rapist, but not even nearly the last. As Paul Bernardo grew more confident, his attacks became more and more menacing. He stalked city buses from his car, looking in the windows for women who were riding alone. When he found a target, he followed the bus until she stepped off, and then he attacked within minutes. His demented attacks were enough to traumatize his victims for the rest of their lives. He raped women orally, anally, and vaginally. He punched them repeatedly in the face. He choked them and even penetrated many women with the blade of a knife. He was a monster in the truest sense of the word. In a later interview, his future wife Carla explained, Paul used to say that his rape benefited women because more attention was paid to sexual assault and therefore more rapists would be deterred and caught. In one case, Paul was bold enough to rape a young girl in a side yard tucked between two houses. She screamed for help and the residents of the household heard her cries. They did not do anything to stop the violence or try to save her. Paul felt invincible. He viciously ambushed three more women between May and September. The final of these initial set of attacks took place on September 29, 1987. Instead of stalking women on the bus like usual, Bernardo broke into the home of a 15-year-old girl. He stealthily crept into her bedroom, jumped on her back before biting her ear, punching her face, and threatening her with a knife. Before Bernardo could rape the teenage girl, her mother entered the room and Bernardo fled through the window. This would be his last attack before he met Carla Homolka. Born in 1970 in Port Credit, Ontario, Carla too seemed to have a relatively normal childhood at first glance. She was a bright student, praised by her father Carl for her good grades and high intelligence. She loved animals and princesses and was popular at school. Still, she was never afraid to speak her mind. Often talking back to her parents and teachers, she was known for being stubborn and pushy. Her father, who doted on his eldest daughter when sober, was an alcoholic who verbally abused Carla when drinking. Remarkably similar to Paul's parents, Carla's father would lock himself into the basement when he was irritated with the rest of the family. Carla also witnessed trouble in her parents' marriage. When bizarrely, Carla's mother, Dorothy, caught Carl having an affair and invited the mistress over for a threesome. Afterward, Dorothy and Carl continued their marriage like nothing out of the ordinary had occurred. As a teenager, Carla was unhappy at school and became depressed. She started to dress in dark clothing and became obsessed with death. She cut herself, sometimes pouring nail polish remover into her scars, and falsely claimed that she had attempted suicide in order to seek attention. 
Carla also started to experience twisted fantasies. Carolyn McDonald, co-counsel of Paul Bernardo's lawyer, claimed that Carla announced to a friend that she had a fantasy to cut up a girl, pour vinegar in the arms, and play connect the dots. Once, when a friend's pet passed away, Carla insisted on seeing the animal's dead body. When her friend refused her, Carla pushed and begged until she finally got her way. She and her friend dug the animal up and Carla examined its body. Her curiosity peaked. It was during this time that Carla landed a part-time job at a veterinary clinic, a job that would soon lead her to Paul Bernardo. Out of town for a pet store convention, 17-year-old Carla first laid eyes on 23-year-old Paul at a hotel restaurant. It was lust at first sight. Two hours after meeting, they were in Carla's hotel room having sex. Carla was different than any woman Paul had ever been with before. She encouraged Paul's sexual deviances. They often indulged in sadomasochism, where Paul played the role of the master and Carla was his slave. Forensic psychiatrists who have studied Carla and Paul's case believe that for Carla, Paul may have provided a, a chance to finally, unapologetically fulfill some of her more sinister urges. Paul and Carla's relationship moved quickly. Twice a week, Paul drove nearly two hours from Scarborough to Carla's home in St. Catharines. His charm and boy-next-door good looks wooed Carla's parents right away. Now working as an accountant, Paul appeared to be a responsible, self-sufficient gentleman. They were proud that their sweet young Carla was dating him. Carla's little sisters were equally swayed by Paul. They thought of him as an older brother and were excited when he came to visit the household. Carla adored the attention she received showing off her new boyfriend to the family. Little did the family know that Paul was verbally abusing Carla during the course of their relationship. Bernardo did not keep his identity as the Scarborough rapist from Carla. She encouraged his sadistic behavior and may have involved herself right away. Less than a year into their relationship, one victim told the police that a blonde woman had been present during the attack and recorded it on a video camera. The police never pursued this claim. As the police hunt for the serial rapist pursued, women were warned to protect themselves and avoid taking the bus at night. Constable Vic Clark even released a statement saying, don't expect people to watch out for you. If you happen to come back at 1 a.m. in the morning off the bus, it would be nice to think that you can go anywhere nowadays, but don't put yourself in a vulnerable position. It felt as though the women in the community were being blamed for what was happening to them. The city even proposed a woman's only curfew at night. Tensions were higher than ever in Scarborough. In May of 1990, after committing over a dozen rapes, Paul was confident enough to attack a woman from the front. This attack would lead to the first real lead in the police investigation. A sketch of the Scarborough rapist's face is vividly described by that same victim. The sketch bore a striking resemblance to Paul. Several of his colleagues actually called the police after seeing it and gave Paul's name. The police did not take the first of these calls seriously, but by the third, they called Paul Bernardo in for questioning. Paul mastered the role of a model citizen at his questioning. The interviewers concluded that Paul was credible, well-educated, well-adjusted, and congenial. Paul willingly gave a sample of his DNA, lowering suspicion even further. He was quickly taken off the list of possible suspects. DNA testing technology was relatively new. Paul's sample would sit untested in a lab for the next two years. In the meantime, Paul's crimes would escalate to murder. Following the police interviews, the Scarborough rapist seemed to have disappeared from Scarborough. No new rapes were reported there. That's because Paul had moved to St. Catharines to live with Carla in her family's home. 
there, the happy couple got engaged to be married and committed three murders together. While Carla and Paul planned their dream wedding, tensions began to grow between them. Paul, whose need for control was fueled by taking a woman's virginity, was bothered that Carla was not a virgin when they met. He felt that Carla owed him her virginity. There was only one way for Carla to make it up to him. Paul had eyes for Carla's 15-year-old sister, Tammy. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Room. I hope you're enjoying the story of Carla Homolka and Paul Bernardo, the Cannon Barbie killers. Now I know there's some sick bastards, and I can't wait for you to hear the ending. It will infuriate you, especially that little bitch, Carla Homolka. But I wanted to take the time out and highlight a missing persons case. Now, this case I found on dnasolves.com, and this comes all the way from Vermont. This has to do with Brianna Maitland. On the morning of March 20th, 2004, the Vermont State Police received a report of an abandoned car on the property known as Old Dutch Burn Barn in the town of Montgomery, Vermont. A green 1985 Oldsmobile Delta was found at an odd angle, backed into the side of the building. The vehicle had collided with the building in such a manner that the rear bumper was stuck on the foundation of the house, causing the rear tires to be elevated and thus disabling the vehicle. There were no indications that the vehicle had come off the roadway in an uncontrolled manner. The responding trooper did not find anyone with the vehicle or inside the abandoned farmhouse. The doors to the vehicle were unlocked and the keys were missing. He noted several items inside the vehicle, including two unopened paychecks from the Black Lantern Inn, addressed to Brianna Maitland. The trooper went to the Black Lantern Inn in an attempt to contact Maitland, but the establishment was closed. The car was then towed to the local tow yard. The day before, Kelly Maitland had gone shopping with her 17-year-old daughter, Brianna Maitland, in St. Albans, Vermont. Brianna had a shift as a dishwasher at the Black Lantern Inn in Montgomery later that evening, and she seemed anxious to get home and get to work. According to co-workers, Brianna's shift was uneventful. She did not have any visitors or make or receive any phone calls. At the end of her shift, around 11.20 p.m., Brianna was seen by a co-worker getting into her car and leaving the parking lot. This was the last time Brianna Maitland was seen alive. On March 23, 2004, Kelly Maitland contacted the Vermont State Police to report Brianna missing. On March 25, 2004, Kelly and her husband Bruce went to the state police barracks in St. Albans to drop off some photographs of Brianna. It was then that a trooper showed Bruce and Kelly a picture of the Green Oldsmobile backed into the Dutchburn barn. They confirmed their daughter had been operating the vehicle on the night of March 19, 2004. The Black Lantern Inn was less than two miles from where her car was found. Although initially believed that Brianna might run away, it was later determined that she could have been a victim of foul play. Investigators had pursued multiple leads throughout the years, but none have led to Brianna. 
The Vermont State Police Major Crime Unit has par- partnered with Onthrom in the hopes of generating a lead using DNA evidence recovered reco- during the investigation. Those with any information that could assist the case are encouraged to call the Vermont State Police at 802-524-5993. That's 802-524-5993. A fund has been established by Onthrum to cover the costs of testing for this case. This case is logged in NAMUS as MP2030. Now, obviously, we want to bring Brianna home. Alive or dead, let's bring her family some closure. I'll link to the article below. If you guys can donate, please go donate. Let's help this case get solved. So a little bit of positivity in a negative situation, bringing just a little bit more light to some people's lives. U.S. Marshals recover 45 missing children in in an anti-human trafficking operation. 45 children, guys. That's so sad. The article goes on to state that Autumn Hope was a multi-agency enforcement operation focused on human trafficking and the location and recovery of missing and exploited children. I'm going to link to the National Center of Exploited and Missing Children below. Go click on it. Go look. Help if you can. Now, during this operation, 45 missing children were recovered and 169 arrests were made. You had the Ohio Human Trafficking Task Force, the U.S. Marshals, with the Ohio Attorney General's Office. They say a loaded gun was also recovered. The 15-year-old male juvenile had two separate warrants and is suspected in multiple shootings and a homicide. A 15-year-old man, 15-year-old boy. I remember when I was 15 and how I thought I was a man. I wasn't a man. 15 years old, that's sad. Another in case involved a high-risk 15-year-old girl who was missing from Cleveland. Information developed from that recovery linked her and other possible victims to an individual in Columbus suspected of human trafficking. So it sounds like that this wasn't a human trafficking ring that this was a bunch of different individuals that were trafficking young girls and children and boys and whatever else they could get money off of and they were all busted so thank you to ohio for working hard in october to bring some of these children home to their families now today i have a highly anticipated promo for another from another podcast that I personally listen to. But I'm going to go ahead and let Josh tell you in his own words. Josh? My fellow citizens, our Earth is in the middle of a crisis, plunging deeper into chaos. No, I feel your pain and your loss. We can't stand idly by and let this happen. We must rise up and... <coughs> Sorry. Damn it. Well, this is awkward. Hi, my name is Josh Shell, and I am the host of the Let's Start a Cult podcast, where each episode, myself and some guests take a look at different cults from around the world, for educational purposes only, and definitely not to start our own cult. 
Join me every other week as we break down dangerous religious cults, political extremist groups, and every other kind of cult in between. Should I apologize for the terrible southern accent? No? Okay. Subscribe and listen to Let's Start a Cult anywhere you listen to podcasts. Now, back to the Jury Room Podcast. Thanks, Josh. Now, here at the Jury Room Podcast, this is a place of support. So with that being said, if you have any feedback on the the current episode, please, there will be a link below. Click it. Let me know what you think. Be honest. Don't hold back. It doesn't help me. It will hurt me. I want to get better for you. Now, there will also be a general case suggestion link below. Please click on that if you have anything you want me to cover. If you want to come on, please share your email address. I'll be in contact. We can set up an interview, sit down, and talk about it. There will also be a missing case person suggestion down below. Please take the time, fill that out. If you have anybody you want me to cover or a loved one, whatever the case is, please fill it out below. I'll bring some more attention to it, and hopefully we can bring some answers home to you. Now, with that being said, let's get back to the Barbie and Ken killers. Tammy and Carla looked almost like twins, except for Tammy's younger years. Her virginity, according to Paul, was a good enough replacement for Carla's. Shockingly, Carla agreed to let Paul have his way with her sister. She stole animal tranquilizers and anesthesia from her vet clinic because according to Carla, she did not want Tammy to tattle on them. It was not uncommon for Carla and Paul to drug their victims. Many did not remember their attacks and were only informed of what had happened to them years later by the police. That Christmas, the two took turns raping and videotaping unconscious Tammy until she died choking on her vomit. Carla attempted to resuscitate her sister, but failed. The couple, now killers, called an ambulance right away. They claimed that the three had gotten carried away with drinking, and Tammy passed out and choked on her vomit. The death was ruled an accident, caused by binge drinking. For a short while, Carla and Paul fiend the grief-stricken sister and brother-in-law. Paul wept over Tammy's death. Hauntingly, the couple placed a Polaroid picture of themselves, burying their teeth in gleeful, mocking smiles in Tammy's casket. Three short weeks after Tammy's death, Carla and Paul made a sex tape of themselves role-playing the incident. Carla wore her dead sister's clothing in the video. Paul referred to her as Tammy. Soon, the happy, demented couple rented a house and moved into their own place together. They continued planning their big white wedding. Carla complained to her parents that they were taking too long to get over the death of their daughter. She believed all of her parents' attention should be devoted to the bride-to-be. In the meantime, the police investigation for the Scarborough rapist continued with no success, and Carla and Paul, feeling unstoppable, indulged in their manic cravings for violence. In June of 1991, Carla met a 15-year-old girl at work and quickly befriended her. She invited the girl home where she gave her a drink drugged with Hallison. She presented the girl to Bernardo as a surprise wedding gift. They took turns raping her all night long. The next morning, the girl had no memory of what had happened. 
They invited her over again soon after, but this time she stopped breathing while they raped her. Amazingly, she recovered and survived the attack. The couple's next victim would not be so lucky. Paul had long fantasized about having a sex slave of his very own, someone he could torture for days at a time and who would do whatever he asked. He was growing tired of late-night attacks in the streets. Encouraged by the success of their first kidnapped victim, Bernardo and Hamalka decided it was time to get a hostage. Leslie Mahaffey was only 14 years old when she returned home at 2 a.m. one night. Her friend had recently passed away, and she had been out with a group of other high schoolers, mourning and drinking together. When she arrived home, she found the doors of her house to be locked. According to Leslie's parents, normally when Leslie was locked out, she banged on the door until her parents eventually opened it for her. This time, for reasons unknown, she chose not to. Instead, she walked to a payphone to call her friend and ask if she could sleep over. The friend did not let Leslie sleep over, so she walked back home, alone, unsure of what to do or where to go. Paul Bernardo happened to be lurking on Leslie's street when he saw the young girl standing in her backyard. He offered her a cigarette from his car. She followed him to the vehicle, and when she was close enough to the door, he wrapped his sweatshirt around her face and neck, shoving her into the car and driving her home to Carla. Astoundingly, when Carla first saw Leslie, she was enraged. Not because there was a teenage kidnapping victim in her house, but because Paul had let Leslie drink out of a champagne flute they had purchased for their wedding. The next morning, when Leslie failed to attend her friend's funeral, her parents called the police. Leslie had run away from home before, but never for long, and she always phoned them when she did. Her parents knew that if she was failing to call, it was because she was unable to. If only they knew, just a few miles away, in an unsuspecting neighborhood home, Leslie was trapped with monsters. Paul and Carla brutally tortured Leslie for the entire weekend, nearly 36 terrible hours. The couple filmed the entire torture. While Paul raped Leslie, he forced Leslie to call him the king and tell him how great he was. He could not keep an erection the whole time, and forcing Leslie's worship aroused him. He also made Leslie wear a blindfold. Between attacks, the couple gave Leslie a teddy bear to cling to. A little under two days later, Carla and Paul needed to rid themselves of their young hostage. It was Father's Day, and Carla's parents would be over for dinner that night. So they planned to transport Leslie somewhere far away and release her. In an attempt to make Leslie unconscious for the drive, Carla fed her animal tranquilizers, and Paul choked her with an electrical cord. She died from strangulation. According to Bernardo, he did not even realize that Leslie had died for almost an hour. When she initially passed out, Paul took a shower and filled his car with gas. It was only when they went to pick her up and take her to the car that he noticed that she was no longer living. The couple dumped Leslie's body in their basement. When Carla's parents arrived, they had a big dinner and entertained them for hours. Leslie's body laying there, just one story beneath them. Later, Carla told Carolyn McDonald in an interview, It was Father's Day, first of all, and there was a dead girl in my house. My family there, I won't forget that. After her family left, Paul and Carla used a circular saw to cut Leslie's body into pieces. They inserted the body parts piece by piece into blocks of concrete. Carla explained in the same interview that I was counting, going through my mind, how many body parts in concrete. There were the two calf portions of the leg, the two thighs, 
the torso from the elbow to the hand and then up there and then the head. So that turned out to be 10. Carla and Paul dumped the concrete blocks, pieces of young Leslie stuffed inside of them into nearby Lake Gibson. Just two weeks after Leslie's murder, it was finally the day Carla had been dreaming about for so long, her wedding day. Carla and Paul's wedding was straight out of a fairy tale. Carla wore an enormous puffy sleeved ball gown and arrived at the ceremony in a horse-drawn carriage. The couple laughed and danced in celebration, surrounded by gleeful friends and family. The photos from their wedding, which show a smiling, handsome couple dressed in a ball gown and dapper tux, are what coined them the nickname Barbie and Ken Killers. While Carla and Paul were exchanging their vows, a canoeer was discovering the 10 concrete blocks peeking up through the water at Lake Gibson. Pieces of flesh were bursting through the cracks in the concrete. The day after their wedding, Carla and Paul left for a Hawaiian honeymoon. While they were gone, police identified the body as that of 14-year-old Leslie. They were unable to identify the child through her dental records and braces. When the newlyweds arrived home from their honeymoon, their relationship had changed. Paul was becoming more and more aggressive, paranoid about the discovery of Leslie's body. He nonsensically blamed Carla for what had happened and began to physically abuse her. Over a year passed after Leslie's murder and the police still didn't have a lead. Paul was regaining confidence that he would never be caught and his need for a new victim was gnawing at him. This time, Paul and Carla would go on the hunt together. The killer couple, having gotten away with two murders, felt invincible. They drove around in broad daylight searching for prey. They spotted 15-year-old Kristen French, who was walking home from school. Kristen French was a sharp girl who had been wary following the murder of Leslie. She had warned friends multiple times against talking with strangers. She was kind-hearted and empathetic, cautious and responsible. Still though, no alarms went off when Kristen was approached by Carla Homolka, carrying a map and asking for directions. After all, it was broad daylight. This kind-looking woman did not look dangerous. She was standing in the parking lot of a church. 15-year-old Kristen went to assist the lost, trustworthy-looking stranger. When Kristen leaned over the map, Paul grabbed her from behind and forced her into his car. They took her straight to their murder house. Carla and Paul held Christian captive for three whole days, like Leslie and Tammy. They videotaped everything they did to her. According to forensic psychologist, Professor Lewis Schlesinger, videotaping heinous acts is common among sexual sadists. For Paul, he could manufacture his own pornography where he's the star actor. Carla and Paul also forced Christian to watch the tapes of Leslie's torture. At some point during the torture, Paul left to go buy dinner for the three to share. He allowed Kristen to pick the restaurant. Kristen, seeing a way out, picked a restaurant that she knew was all the way at the other end of town. Paul was gone for over half an hour. During that time, Kristen pleaded with Carla to let her go. Instead of freeing her victim, Carla beat her with a rubber mallet. On the third day, Easter Sunday, Bernardo strangled Kristen to death for seven grueling minutes. Carla watched the strangulation while doing her hair and makeup, getting ready for Easter dinner at her parents' house. After dinner, Carla and Paul washed Kristen's dead body and chopped off her hair. They dumped her in a ditch in Burlington, Ontario. Now the second body of a schoolgirl to be found in the area. The police coined the name Schoolgirl Killings. 
and started a green ribbon task force to find the assailant. By this point, whatever spark once existed in Carla and Paul's relationship had gone out entirely. Paul was more paranoid than ever. He wanted to legally change their names to Paul and Carla Teal, a reference to the 1988 film Criminal Law. Paul's beatings on Carla was getting worse and worse. One night, he gave Carla two massive black eyes by punching her in the face with a flashlight. At work, Carla attempted to blame her black eyes on a fictional car accident, but her co-workers did not believe her. They called her parents, who insisted on taking Carla to the hospital. There, Carla finally admitted that her bruises were caused by Paul and agreed to press charges. At the same time, the DNA sample that Paul had given two years earlier in the Scarborough rapist case was finally tested. It was determined, without a doubt, that Paul was the Scarborough rapist. Carla, fueled by the support she found when she pressed charges against Paul, admitted to an aunt and uncle that she and Bernardo had murdered Tammy, Leslie, and Kristen, but she claimed that she was forced into these heinous crimes by her abusive husband. Her aunt and uncle convinced Carla to go to the police. Before going to the police, Carla searched her house for the damning videotapes, but to no avail. She had no idea where her husband had hidden them. Carla proceeded to the police without the tapes and confessed to the killings of the three girls. Still though, she did not take the blame for the crimes, instead claiming that Paul had been the primary instigator. Carla entered a plea deal to grant herself a lighter sentence for the horrific crimes. If she told the police everything she knew, then she would not spend her life in prison. Carla did plead guilty for manslaughter of the three young girls, but convinced the jury that she was really not at fault for the crimes and that she would never have committed them if it weren't for the fear of her husband. When questioned about what finally prompted Carla to get away from Paul, Carla explained, I chose the lesser of two evils, either live with him and die, guaranteed, or live away from him, live in fear, and yet have a chance of survival. I figured, I'm out, I have a chance, it doesn't matter anymore. Carla filed for divorce immediately after pressing charges against her husband and giving all the information she knew to the police. At Carla's trial, Carla successfully convinced the jury that she was a brainwashed victim and not a predator. She was given a mere 12 years in prison for the murders she committed. Five for Kristen, five for Leslie, and two for Tammy. By the time of Paul Bernardo's trial, the infamous torture videotapes had still not been recovered. Bernardo confessed that the torture rape and murders of Leslie, Kristen, and the rape and murder of Tammy, and to 32 other rape-related charges against 14 women in Scarborough. In 2006, he admitted to 10 additional rapes. In the middle of Bernardo's trial, his lawyer, overwhelmed with having to defend a maniac, quit. It was revealed that Bernardo's lawyer had been hiding the videotapes. He gave them to the new lawyer, who turned them in to the police. The tapes revealed that Carla was not the victim she claimed to be, but that she was just as evil, just as disgusting, just as monstrous as Paul. The video showed a woman who was enjoying herself, enthralling in the horror she was committing. By then, it was too late. Carla Homolka could not be tried twice for the same crime. She was released from prison in 2005 and has been free ever since. Now, Carla Homolka goes by the name of Carla Teal. She remarried to her lawyer's brother and has three children with him. In 2017, she was seen volunteering at her child's elementary school. Paul was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 25 years. In 2018, 
he was found with a knife he, that he had made in prison. That same year, he could finally apply for parole. He did, stating that he discovered and confronted the psychological reasons for his sadistic sexual atrocities. He claimed to have suffered from low self-esteem and stress. His application was denied, and he remains in prison today, likely for the rest of his life. Whether or not Carla Homolka would have committed murder if she had never met Paul Bernardo will never be known. She was a battered wife, yes, but Carla Homolka was not the brainwashed victim she claimed to be. She is a master manipulator with a taste for torture and would likely have been a menace to society no matter what. Paul simply gave her an easy way into evil. Paul, on the other hand, would have most definitely escalated from rape to kidnap and murder with or without Carla. His twisted sexual fantasies and thirst for violence and power would have most likely become too difficult to resist. Together, Carla Homolka and Paul Bernardo were an evil force to be reckoned with. Powerful, ruthless, animalistic, they encouraged each other's darkness, impressed each other with their terrifying fantasies, indulged each other's every terrible craving. Canada will forever be haunted by the sadistic Barbie and Ken killers. This seemingly happy-go-lucky couple is a stark reminder that anyone, even those we least suspect, could be a killer. Thanks for listening. And remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been the jury room. Thank you for taking the time out to listen to episode two of the jury room podcast. Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka, Ken and Barbie. I don't want to give them any more attention than they already have had, but I do want to take the time to recognize their victims and his victims. The three murders that were committed by these two despicable human beings, Tammy Homolka, Leslie Mahaffey, and Kristen French. I just wanted to take a moment of silence for them. Now, these two were despicable, disgusting pieces of trash that shouldn't even exist on this planet anymore. But I also wanted to take time out to recognize Paul Bernardo's victims, the Scarborough rapist victims. Join me in a moment of silence for all of his rape victims. Please, if you or a loved one needs help with a domestic violence situation, please call 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233.
please get help. They are available 24-7, 365 days out of the year. Do not let a loved one become a true crime story.